When you watch your, your favorite team play, uh, you tend to watch them in the best light. You know, that's not a foul. You know, he didn't travel. Of course he reached the end zone. You know, that's not pass interference. That's kind of how we watch our teams play. It's not just with our favorite teams, though. I mean, you see this with parents, right? Not any of the parents in this room, I'm sure. Right? But other parents. You, know, you see it when you're observing their children or when they're observing your children and the kind of ways that they might see your children. We see altercations differently between our children. You know, we see the flaws in someone else's child a lot more quickly than we see flaws in our own children. And we tend to have reasons why our kid did what they did. We understand, oh, I know why they did that. I can understand why they did that, whereas we don't know that with other children. And it doesn't stop there. We tend to see ourselves in the best light. We tend to see the failures of others more easily than we see our own failures. Others have observed this. They call it, some have called it the self-enhancement effect. Others just call it self-righteousness. But they have also referred to this as moral superiority. This idea, this natural default that we have that assumes that we are actually superior to others morally. It's seen all across the board, seen everywhere. And as our secular world attempts to address it, they leave out a very crucial component as to why this happens. The secular world does not address sin. The chief reason why this happens. So if we're going to, can, they can discover this phenomenon, they can see it, but if we're going to actually address it, the Bible is the best source to help us understand how to address this idea of moral superiority. And we need to do it. We need to address this. I mean, every time you watch your favorite team play against somebody else's favorite team and you watch that game, you know we have to deal with this moral superiority because of how they treat your team. And every time you experience a judgmental response from a parent on your child you know we, we got to deal with this thing it's moral superiority every time somebody else confronts you about a sin that they themselves have done we know we need to we need to address this moral superiority for all those people that are doing the wrong thing and the hardest part the biggest trouble we have is seeing this in ourselves that's exactly what Paul is going to do. He's going to address this in ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. You can turn there. And again, it's on page, uh, starting on page 883 in the Pew Bible. But the goal of this section, the goal of Romans 2, 1 through 11 is to put an end to moral superiority. Not in someone else. The goal of this chapter is to address our ideas of moral superiority on others. And to put an end to it. And Paul helps us focus on this by engaging in this ancient form of rhetoric known as diatribe. And uh, a scholar by the name of Richard Longenecker, he explained the purpose of of speaking like this. And what Paul's doing is he's, he's, he's acting as though he's talking to someone in particular. 
He's imagining that he's having a conversation with someone. Now, when you read the Bible, you often just insert a tone to it, right? You hear as you're reading a certain tone, and you realize we can get that wrong. We can hear that tone wrong. So you could hear what Paul says in this passage, and it can sound harsh. But you need to understand how the Romans would have heard it. They would not have heard it that way because they understood this method of diatribe. Imagining that you're speaking to someone in particular and and interacting with them. And it was a teaching tool. It was a method to try to help somebody who's thinking wrong think the right way. And so they would have viewed it that way as Paul is the teacher and he is addressing us as students, and he is for us. He's on our side. So Longenecker puts it this way. The teacher was not motivated by contempt for his student, but by concern to lead his student into a more mature understanding of the issue at hand. So Paul wants us to walk through this issue personally. That's why he engages this way. He's not saying that we are exactly the person he's talking to, We're going to learn who that person is specifically. But as we hear this, we can hear points of contact with our life, the way that we look at others. And when we do that, we need to listen to him, not as he's coming down on us and showing contempt for us, but that he cares about us and wants us to see things the right way. Now, in order to understand what Paul's getting at here in chapter two, we need to remember where we've been three weeks ago. So, or maybe four, I guess. So Paul begins this, this major section by explaining the theme of the letter. It's all this, this good news. The good news about the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. That is what the whole letter is about. But in order to understand why that is good news, that we have righteous, the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus, we need to understand why we need that. And that's what Paul launches into in verse 8 of the first chapter. And what he's doing there is he's showing that we're all condemned. All of humanity stands condemned before God. We're all guilty. We have no excuse, no defense. Because God is known in the world, and yet he's rejected universally. So that led Paul to go on in that chapter to explain a little bit more about our circumstances and the situation we're in. So God's wrath, his righteous anger that brings punishment, we can see it, it, it being brought about, being inflicted on us even now. We see that in, in what's happening around us. See, because humanity turned God's intentions for his creation on its head, and God has responded, he has handed us over to ourselves. Because people chose to pursue desires themselves instead of what those desires or the one those desires were supposed to point to for fulfillment, God has now handed us over to our desires. To be ruled by our desires. And humanity was given intelligence. We were given that so that we would recognize God and his great worth and thank him. But that's not how we responded. We've responded in a defective way. We've used our intelligence in the wrong way. And so God has handed us over to that defective intelligence. Basically, we've taken God's gifts of having desires and having intelligence, and we've used them defectively. And so now God says, you're going to have to use them defectively. So our desires that were supposed to honor God, now what they do 
dishonor our bodies. And this intelligence was supposed to recognize the appropriateness of God for our lives. Now it just produces inappropriate lives. So it's at this point that somebody could be listening to Paul. They could hear that argument and they could say, yeah, preach it, Paul. You're right. You look at this pagan world, and, it, and the pagan world is summarized especially by idolatry and homosexuality. And, and they might say, you're right, Paul. Those people are condemned. Now Paul turns to address that person who would think that. To think that they're morally superior to the people he's described in chapter 1. He started his letter explaining that God's wrath stands over all ungodliness. That's not just true for those people. It's true for all of us. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's addressing this moral superiority, this morally superior person who thinks that way. And he's putting an end to it. So how does moral superiority come to an end? There are two ways. It comes to an end when you see the real you and when you see the real judge. So let's look at the first five verses of chapter 2. We're going to see the first part of this. In order for your moral, in, your moral superiority to come to an end, you need to see the real you. So if, if you're listening to Paul up to this point, and you're thinking about other people and what they do, Paul is talking to you. If you imagine yourself watching the final judgment, and you're watching somebody else in the dock, and you view yourself as kind of a, a witness for the prosecution, saying, God, yeah, that person's guilty. This text, Paul is talking to you. We are in the dock. We're all guilty. In the final judgment, we will not pass. We will be condemned. We, we are without excuse, every last one of us. Now, when you look at the first two verses, uh, I think... The logic is maybe seen a little bit more clearly if you take it in reverse. So I'm just going to summarize the reverse before we get into the passage. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul's saying, We know that the judgment of God is rightly against those practicing the things that are found in chapter 1. We know God's right to do that, to condemn that. And anyone who judges other people who behave that way what they're doing is they're condemning themselves because they practice the same kinds of things. That means everyone who judges the sins of others, they're proving that they themselves are worthy of God's condemnation, that they have no excuse. But Paul starts the other way around. He starts with this pronouncement of verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, we're therefore linking this with the past section, but it's not linking it with just those last verses that we came to. It's actually bringing us to the very beginning of Paul's argument, where he started things. Again, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, because people know God and they reject him. Every one of us, everyone, not just the people we think deserve God's punishment. Even the person who looks down on others because they don't do those things. That person isn't the obvious sinner. Is able to look at others as obvious sinners. That person 
is without excuse. Even the person who recognizes that having an alternative form of worship or sexuality is absolutely wrong and condemned by God without excuse, that person, too, is condemned by God and without excuse. So the person who views themselves in this this morally superior way, they're thinking they don't deserve God's judgment. And so they're wondering why Paul could look at them and now say they deserve God's judgment. They want to know, why, how can you say that? So Paul explains, in passing judgment on, other, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You've heard before that somebody, whenever you point at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. It's the kind of, you're pointing at somebody else, but you do the same thing. You're doing the very same sins, the same kinds of sins. So when we judge, when that person judges somebody else, they're judging and condemning themselves. They're condemning their own sin. Keep in mind, though, that Paul, he does point out idolatry and homosexuality in the previous chapter. But that's not the only thing that he pointed out. He also listed other sins in verses 29 through 31. It's an extensive list of sins. If you can't find yourself there, you're not looking. It condemns everyone. It implicates everyone in God's condemnation. Now, again, we have an easier time seeing other people's sin. We have this natural tendency to put ourselves in a special seat that says they did that wrong without actually looking at ourselves. But when we condemn someone else's sin, we're just confirming our own condemnation because we do the same kinds of things. You look at the list in chapter 1, and you say, yeah, they're guilty. You're condemning yourself because you do the same things. Tim Keller gave a, a great way of confirming this if somebody were to question it and say, well, I'm not so sure, Paul. He, he got this from actually another theologian named Francis Schaeffer who called it the invisible tape recorder. So pardon the use of tape for you who don't even know what that means. Just think of a recorder. Uh, something that records you. I mean, you could think of it as like a body cam, like our police officers were, but the main thing is the hearing. So here's how Tim Keller describes it. He says, it is though unseen, there is a recorder around each of our necks. It records the things we say to others and about others, about how they ought to live. Then at the last day, God the judge will take the tape recorder, take that recording device off your neck and say, I will be completely fair. I will simply play this tape And judge you on the basis of what your own words say are the standards for human behavior. Now, the point is not to say that that's what God does. The point of that illustration is to say, how would you do? If God recorded the ways that you have condemned others, and then he just used that condemnation to point the same things out in you, how would you fare? Point is, we wouldn't fare very well. So, even again, the person who thinks they're morally superior, they're they're condemned. And they would agree with what Paul says in verse 2. So he, he then goes on and states something that everybody that he's talking to would have agreed with him. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Another way to translate rightly is according to truth. In other words, 
God's judgment fits what really happened. It's accurate. It's not based on false testimony. It's body cam footage, even better than body cam footage. It gets everything. So it's based on what we've actually done. And that means that his condemnation of us is going to be right and fair. Then in verse 3, Paul turns to this individual that he's conversing with who thinks they're superior and says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, God's judgment is accurate and right. He condemns the things found in chapter 1. So how in the world do you think you're going to escape if you do the things that I just talked about in chapter 1? You've basically just condemned yourself in judging somebody else. That's not all, though. In verse 4, he takes a step further. He's not just showing them that they condemn themselves. He's saying not only that, but they've completely ignored the significance of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. The significance that God intended it to have for them. They treated God's kindness and forbearance and patience as insignificant because they thought it meant that that God was on their side, and they would escape judgment. They thought he would treat them differently because of this kindness he was showing them. The, thoughts, the thought is, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. And I have this special relationship with God. And he's saying to God, you know, we're simpatico. We're, we're, we're on the same team, God. I'm different than those other people. So they did expect, this person he's conversing with, expected to be treated differently. Paul's saying that's not what God's kindness and forbearance and patience mean. God truly is kind. And his kindness is seen in the way that he shows this forbearance and patience with others. He doesn't judge them immediately for their sin. He waits. He gives them time. But what is that time for? It wasn't communicating to them that they're okay. The time God gives us is not meant to communicate that everything's fine. His intention was to show us that we need to repent. He says that his his kindness, by his kindness, it shows you that this kindness, rather, is meant to lead you to repentance. The morally superior person doesn't think they need to repent. They already think they're okay. They're better than those other people. So that's why they continue in their sin. They don't address it. And Paul says in verse 5, all they're doing is storing up more and more wrath that they're going to have to face. The idea of thinking that you're okay, what Paul says that comes from is this, it's evidence of a hard and impenitent heart. He's pointing to this inner life of a person who thinks they're completely, they're convinced that they're okay. Unshakable. In that attitude. They're hardened in it. So that they don't think they need to repent. And they don't want to repent. Of anything. And because of that heart of stone. That does not and will not repent. Instead of storing up treasures in heaven. Like Jesus talks about. They're storing up wrath. They're continuing in their sin. And as they daily ignore that sin. They're just increasing. The amount of, of punishment. That they will receive one day. A day in the end when God 
does set up his final judgment. They don't see the wrath now, but one day they and everyone will see it. It's a day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed for all to see. Now, I think somebody could read these first five verses a little bit thoughtlessly, just read over them, and the impression they could get is the impression that a lot of people get when they read the Bible in these kinds of subjects. They could take a passage like this and say, see, you shouldn't judge people. It says, don't, don't judge, right? What they mean by that is, you should not say that anybody else is doing anything wrong. That you should lighten up on your understanding on what's wrong. And just stop judging people. Now, we should not be judgmental. And Paul's getting at that very thing. But he's not saying to lighten up on our understanding of sin, but to see the truth and the significance of sin, not for the the people around us primarily, but for ourselves. So we don't want to respond to this text that way. We need to respond as one who recognizes our own sin, who sees ourselves for who we truly are and not lighten up on the sin that, that God says. To say, well, that's not really sin, and that's not really sin, just like the world says it isn't. We don't, we don't do that. But we focus on the fact that we are guilty. We're without excuse. That we deserve God's wrath. So if, if this morning you, you recognize that you do look down on other people, you think they're in trouble. One day, when God comes back, when, God, when Christ comes back, I mean, they're going to get it. You can see God punishing the Hitlers of this world, but you don't, you don't think at all that he's going to come after you. You need to see the real you. That you and I, we are just as much sinners as anybody else in this world. Apart from the grace of God, we are all guilty sinners who deserve to face God's wrath. We have no defense. We have nothing that we could say as a reason why we should be treated differently. This invisible body cam footage is going to come through. It's going to demonstrate the ways that we have treated other people when we didn't think it was appropriate for them to treat us that way. We will condemn ourselves. But that's not the only thing that you need to see This morning, you don't just need to see the real you. In order for your moral superiority to come to an end, you need to see the real judge. You're not the judge. But there is a real judge. And what is he going to do? There is a saying in basketball, when a ref calls a foul, that you don't think was a foul. And the person shoots a free throw, and they miss it. Say, ball, don't lie. It's a saying, basically, you know, the, the ref missed it. You know, they missed the call. But that ball, that ball knew that that wasn't a foul. And he wouldn't go in the hole. He wouldn't go in the basket. Because it was an impartial judge. That ball don't lie. We know that judges fail. Human judges fail. Not, not everybody gets it right. Even the best judge is not going to be perfectly just in their, in their judgments. But what Paul's saying in verses 6 through 11 is that the real judge 
always gets it right. The real judge don't lie. He always gets it right. So what verses 6 through 11 are doing is, is teasing out what he just mentioned. That he mentioned God's righteous judgment. It's a phrase that means God's judgment is perfectly right. But how do we know that? How do we know that his judgment is right? That's what these verses are doing. They're telling us how we know God's judgment really is perfectly righteous. And what Paul does is he begins basically with a quote from the Old Testament. Verse 6 is essentially a quote. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. It's found throughout the Old Testament but, and throughout the New Testament. But, for example, Psalm 62, 12 says, for you will render to a man according to his work. In fact, the Greek translation of that verse is almost identical to what Paul says here in Romans 2, 6. So the basis for God's judgment is what we've actually done in the end. Not hypotheticals, but what we've actually done. God will determine the right standing with him based on how every person actually lived their life. So did you do what God created you to do or not? That's how he judges. Now we'll talk about, this is all true apart from Christ. But this is the way he judges. This is the way his judgment works. So if you want something outside of Christ, this is what you face. He goes into greater detail in verses 10 through, or sorry, verses 7 through 10. And these verses have a structure to them. It's called a chiasm. My wife's not here, so I'm going to use that word and just teach you what it means. It's a, it's a wonderful structure. You actually see it throughout all of the Bible, um, especially in the Old Testament. And basically, it's a pattern where the first part of a statement is repeated, essentially, in the last part of the statement. And the second part of the statement is repeated in the second to last statement. So if you write it, you wrote out a statement, you wrote it across, and then the second part of it you wrote across, you could draw a line from the first part to the end, and you could draw part, a line from the second part to the second last, and what shape does that make? An X, or in Greek, a chi, thus a chiasm. So it's a pattern, and in those patterns, typically, the central part is the most important. So if you look at verses 7 through 10, what you find is that 7 and 10, if you wrote 7, 8, 9, 10 out on a line, or sorry, go backwards for you, we'll go reverse. So 7, you drew a line to 10. And then you drew a line from 8 to 9, you have that pattern. But the center is typically the most important thing. So you have it in sometimes just a proverb, just two lines. You'll see this pattern. But you can also see it in an entire story. And in fact, the flood story in Genesis 7 through 8, that is told in this same structure. And so at the center of the story is one of the most important things that you get out of the story. And what does Genesis 8, 1 say? But God remembered Noah. So in the midst of this punishment, what you see central to the story is God's grace to Noah. So what is the center of this chiasm? It's verses 8 and 9. And that fits with what this whole section is about. Paul's been showing us that God's wrath is on all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. This is the wrath of God dealing with unrighteousness in those two verses. 
That's the main point. That's what we need to keep in mind as we go through this. That's what Paul is stressing. So let's come back to verse 6. Again, Paul said that God will render to each one according to his works. Then in verse 7, he begins to tease that out. He gives two possibilities to these each one, to the each one. So one possibility to that is that God will render or give to a person eternal life in accordance with what they've done. And what have they done? I think to smooth it out, uh, they seek for glory and honor and immortality by patience and well-doing. They're seeking God, really, is what that's saying. Seeking God's glory, sharing in his, his majestic character, and they want to experience his honor. They want to experience the immortality that comes with him. That's what they're pursuing, and they pursue it by this, this consistent perseverance in doing what is good. That's how they are pursuing that glory. And the person who does that, they can expect to receive eternal life. Life in the eternal age to come, the kingdom age. That's the first option. Again, this is apart from Christ. Keep that in mind. But on the other hand, the person who does not seek after God, but rather is self-seeking. They're not concerned with pursuing God, but with pursuing things for themselves. And who refuses to obey the truth, but instead obeys unrighteousness, that person will experience God's wrath and fury for their behavior. Now notice something that Paul did there. Back in Romans 1.18, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And here you have the same thing. They don't obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness, and now they experience God's wrath and fury. This is the central point. This is what Paul is doing. Just to be clear, he repeats himself in verse 9. Again, with this chiastic reverse order. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That's a pretty emphatic statement of every single individual. It's true for every last one of us who does what is evil. They will experience the tribulation and distress of God's righteous punishment for sin. And then in verse 10, he gives us the positive flip side that there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Instead of experiencing tribulation and distress, they'll experience God's glory and honor. And they'll experience peace with God based on doing good. And it's, again, it's true for everyone. But Paul adds something to both of those last two statements. It's kind of startling if you've been following along. Twice, he says, the Jew first and also the Greek. We go back to chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul mentions the gospel again. He says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jewish people, they're God's old covenant people, and they hold a very important place in God's plans, even still. And so what Paul says there is that God is going to God has and, and is going to have a role for them in salvation that has a priority to it. But that does not mean he's going to treat the Jewish person differently in the judgment. They do experience this blessing of priority and salvation. They've experienced God's revelation of it first. And they also experience a priority in the punishment for those who fail. To do what God has called us to do. 
they're held accountable. They're held responsible first because they received the revelation first. So the Lord said in Amos 3.2, you only have I known, speaking to Israel, you only have I known, or we could say chosen, chosen you from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's not what you'd expect, right? To hear, I've, I've chosen you out of all these other families of the earth, therefore I will punish you. There were a lot of Jewish people who would not have put that, would not have thought in those ways either. Would have thought there's something more here. And so it's here at this part, at this point, where Paul really starts to peel back the curtain on who he's talking to. Who his conversation partner is. Later in this chapter, he's going to be explicit that he is speaking to somebody who's Jewish. If you look at verse 17 to see that. But there have been some hints up to this point that that is who he's talking to. If you're a Jewish person reading this, you're reading chapter 1, likely had read other Jewish literature up to this point, you probably notice how similar Paul's argument is to a lot of other Jewish writers. In fact, one in particular this pseudepigraphal writer uh, of a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's pseudepigraphal because it's not actually Solomon who wrote it. It's a false name. But it was written by a Jewish person in the centuries before Jesus arrived. And Douglas Moo pointed out that the Jewish writer in that text, he criticizes Gentiles for their idolatry and fornication. And he says that they are not to be excused because the evidence for God is clear in creation. But they've rejected that knowledge. Does that sound familiar? I mean, Paul's argument in chapter 1 follows it pretty tightly. But then the writer of the wisdom of Solomon says, but you, our God, are kind and true. Listen to all these similar things. Patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. For to know you is complete righteousness. And to know your power is the root of immortality. The writer is doing exactly what Paul is saying you should not do. He is presuming on God's kindness. He's saying that because he's a member of God's people, because he belongs to God, that God is going to treat his sin differently. In fact, he's even saying that this relationship will help him not sin and that it ensures his complete righteousness. So, also in verse 5, Paul describes this conversation partner as having a hard and impenitent heart. Where else do you hear that idea in the Bible? Hear it as a description, not of the Gentiles, Though you could. But you hear it as a description of God's people at the very beginning. Especially in places like Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9.7 mentions the same Greek word in the, translate, the Greek translation of that, that verse. The same word is used there that is used here. Describes God's people as stubborn or hard. Describes them as stiff-necked. It's a similar word. It describes them as having hearts of stone. It's not the nations that God is saying that about. In Deuteronomy, he's saying that about his old covenant people, the very people he'd made this covenant with. So 
Paul is using language that would start to hint at his conversation partner. He's talking to a Jewish person who looks at others and says, I'm not going to be treated like them. I'm going to be treated differently. And he sums up what he's getting at in verse 11. God shows no partiality. He is not going to treat the old covenant member, the Jewish person, any differently than he is going to treat a Gentile on that last day. We are all sinners in need of God's righteousness by faith in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. So even though you read these two groups of people, one who does what is evil and faces God's wrath and one who does what is good and is rewarded with eternal life, Paul isn't saying that anyone can actually do what is good in order to be righteous before God. He is not saying that. His argument is building to chapter 3, verse 8, that says, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. No exceptions. And then he goes on to say that, verse that we well know in verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God he is not in any way making an argument that there's an alternative route that somebody else has done it so who then are the people he's talking about in this second group who reached this judgment and they're rewarded with eternal life for doing good works it's hard to it is honestly hard to try to figure out exactly what Paul's saying because he doesn't clarify what he means in this case. And I think he doesn't clarify because ultimately this question that I'm, I'm touching on isn't important. <laughs> but you could imagine that maybe he's thinking of the believer. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 25 does talk about how his judgment is going to occur. Come and enjoy the kingdom. You who cared for my brothers and sisters, your fellow believers. You did these works. Come enjoy the kingdom. You on his left, are excluded because you did not care for the believers. You see that description of, of being judged on the basis of works. Jesus is not saying that the works are what save you. And Paul's not saying that here. But it is true that Christians are saved so that we will do good works. We, we very commonly can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, say, for by grace you are saved through faith and not by works. But verse 10 goes on to say that you were saved to do good works. So there are these good works. And Paul says, he's very clear in 2 Corinthians 5.10, that believers too are going, to, are going to have our works judged. So you can think maybe Paul's given a nod to that. And saying that there are people that are going to have these works. But I don't think that that's what Paul's really focused on here in this passage. His main point, again, is to stress how this real judge, how the, the true judge judges, how he makes his ruling. And again, when we look at verses, verses 7 through 10, the center point is his emphasis. He's viewing people in these verses holistically. In verse 6, he mentions good works, plural. But in verses 7 through 10, it's used in the singular. In other words, he's not talking about good works in the plural. He's talking about somebody who's pursued what is good in a singular sense. The holistic, their whole life has been demonstrated by this consistent verse uh, that, that seeking in, in verse 7 is it's present tense, means ongoing, seeking, and it mentions this perseverance in good works. 
point is that holistically, this is true. And the reverse is true. The other person has done what is evil. Notice he's not saying a person has done more good than evil. That's not his comparison. There's not a third category. So, I think what he's doing is, he's just stressing that the person who thinks they're morally morally superior needs to recognize that they have done evil. And that puts them squarely in another category. Not verse 7 or verse 10, but verses 8 and 9. And that means that their old covenant status with God will not rescue them from God's judgment. They also need the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus. So on one level, what this passage does is it it establishes the correctness of Jewish evangelism. I have heard Christians sometimes talk in ways that is very confusing and unhelpful because they almost present this idea that God has two ways of salvation. There's the Jewish way of salvation, and then there's ours. That is not true. In fact, Paul's going to go to great lengths in, in Romans to say that God's way of salvation has always been on the basis of faith. And it's only been a corruption of what God taught that gives you this impression that you could achieve it through the law. You could never have achieved salvation through the law. There are Old Testament saints, but they were not saved and they were not made holy by their works. And this is saying that now that Jesus has come, the fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament was pointing to have come to pass in Jesus. And that is why their faith must rest in him. There's no salvation outside of this. Y'all need Jesus, Jewish or un-Jewish, goyim or Jewish. Now, the person who is just simply moral and they, and they want to try to use this reasoning and say, I'm better than somebody else. They really don't have a lot going for them. I can understand the Jewish person making the argument more because God actually has treated them differently. God has treated the Jewish nation differently. He did choose them out of all the families of the earth for the sake of his plans. And even they are going to be judged on the same basis. So what does that say for us who aren't a part of that reality? There's one person who's a part of that reality. But all of us stand condemned. We haven't been shown any special privileges in that old covenant sense. So you might look around and you could see a whole lot of people in our society that are worse than you. You need to keep in mind the self-enhancement effect. And if God's invisible recording device were used... it would demonstrate the way that you've condemned someone for mistreating you the same way that you've mistreated others. That you are not morally superior. They are not morally inferior. We have not consistently done what is good. And we have done what is evil. We deserve God's punishment. That's why we need to be made righteous through Jesus. That's why we need what he talks about, this good news that there's righteousness, the righteousness of God that we can experience by faith in Jesus. Jesus was righteous. He continually persevered in doing what was good his entire life. He deserved to be repaid with eternal life. 
And you see that when he rose again from the grave. But he willingly took on God's punishment on the cross. He took on God's wrath on the cross. And then he did rise gloriously from the grave to show that eternal life can be attained through him. And he did it all. He came here and did that all to save sinners who recognize the truth of it. And their lives are changed by that. You see that Jesus took their wrath. And they believe that. And they believe that Jesus is now seated on the throne. That he's their king. So what we would say is believe what this Bible says. Believe what Paul is saying here. That you are a sinner. That you need Jesus. And trust in him. As the one who saves you and now reigns. And then start listening to him. Not to save you. Because he has saved you. And if you have any questions about that, you want to know more about that, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk to you more about that. If you are trusting in Jesus to be righteous and accepted by God, you can still slip into this moral superiority. So think about how you look at people outside the church. Do you look at them like a parent looks at somebody else's kids? Do you look at them the way that you might look at somebody else's favorite team? Are you looking at other people and thinking that you are better than them? And maybe the question isn't, are you? The question is better to ask, who are you thinking that you're better than? Remember what Paul mentioned in chapter 1, what this Jewish conversation partner would have said. He'd looked at the LGBTQ plus community, and he'd say, yeah, those guys, they're guilty. Is that who you think you're better than? Or maybe it's other religions. You, th- you look at Hindus or Muslims and think, I'm better than them. Maybe you wouldn't ever vocalize that. But do you look down on them as morally inferior? Who in your life do you feel morally superior to? Democrats? Republicans? We're all in the same boat. Not too long ago, Walmart was selling this t-shirt that read, y'all need Jesus. And I don't know if you have it, but my recommendation is, don't get it. And if you have it, burn it. I'll help you. I say that because if, if you're saying y'all need Jesus, remember you got three fingers pointing back at you. So the truth is we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So let's put an end to our moral superiority, superiority, not by lowering our standards like the world wants us to do and say everything's okay. That's not the way that we should respond to this. But to see all of us equally as sinners and to see the real judge and the way that he judges As we meditate on this reality that we all need Jesus, I am confident that it will strengthen us in our ability to love other people no matter who we come across. When you realize that you're really not better than anyone else, you can love no matter who you come across. And every time you have that knee-jerk reaction to say, oh man, that person's really bad, realize that that's sin. 
realize that that is the arrogance of an individual like Paul's talking to in chapter 2. And that you need to say, the very things that I am condemning can be found in my life. And if you have questions about that, you just read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He will straighten it out for you. Join me in prayer. Father, we know that your grace is sufficient. That we are not better. That we, we need you. So help us not to look down on the people around us. Help us to love them and help us to love them not in ways that say that they're okay. Not in ways that ignore their need for Christ. But in ways that are, are encouraged that they need Christ just as much as we need Christ. Work in our hearts to love. It's the fruit of your spirit. So that we, we will be confident enough and caring enough to share the truth with people, to live deliberate lives with the people around us with a, a desire to tell them the truth about Jesus and not just live a, a way that, in a way that gets along with the people around us. Yeah, we want to get along with people. We want to be peaceful with people, but we care about them. Help us to care about them deeply enough to share Jesus with them. And anyone here, Father, who, who really does think they're okay, thinks that you're going to treat them differently, Pray that this morning they would see the truth. That the only way, our only hope in life and death is Christ. And Christ alone. That they would believe that. And that we would believe it even as we sing this last song. Amen.